Yes, I know it feels like a lifetime since we last saw each other, but I promise it was only two weeks. Two weeks, of course, full of changing nappies and invoking the Holy Spirits of burping, as my baby boy is officially one month old. This is possible and brain us for mostly learning. Last time, we had the chance to explore the extremely common yet equally complex matter of headaches with one of the world-leading experts and one of the 2021 awardees of probably the most prestigious award in our field, the Brain Prize, and our guest, Professor Peter Goldsby. If you missed that, make sure you watch the video on YouTube or indulge my Greek accent by listening the whole session on Spotify. This week, though, we take a virtual flight to Montreal and McGill University, where we find today's guest. And what a guest. He is the director of the McGill Group for Suicide Studies, but also the head of the Depressive Disorders Program. He has, give or take, 515 publications, which is approximately 505 more than myself. He has been cited over 43,000 times. He's among the 2020 highly cited scientists. He has more than 32 career awards, including the prestigious Margolis Brain Disorders Prize and the Colvin Prize for Outstanding Achievement in Mood Disorders. Braincast people, this is Professor Gustavo Turecki. Prof, welcome to Braincast. Good morning or good afternoon. Thank yes, you. good morning. It's pretty early there and thank you for making the time to join us today. Prof, without a shadow of a doubt, one of the most devastating experiences for anyone to have is contemplating taking their own lives. And, you know, but, but despite that, society response hasn't always been that sympathetic, if you like. And the sad truth about suicide is that it's way more common than we would have liked it to be, with the whole health organization reporting something like 800,000 people dying by suicide each year worldwide. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Of course, you know, not everyone is affected the same. And this is something we will be exploring in the next few questions. So let's start with what many people call the suicide paradox, that while women are more likely to experience suicidal thoughts, men are much more likely to take their own lives, which I have to say has led many to falsely underestimate not only the risk, but also the impact suicidal ideation may have on one's well-being, particularly the females. So is that suicide paradox true? Yes, yeah, so generally it is. And you see, um, in most, uh, of, uh, most of the countries, you see a difference uh, in the way, as you presented, that women um, uh, attempt more suicide, whereas men die more by suicide. There are exceptions, though, to this. Um, and, uh, the, and these are notable exceptions, such as uh, rural China, and some parts of India where um, um, uh, the more women also die by suicide. And now it has shifted a little bit in China as it developed. Um, and the way uh, we understood uh, why uh, it happened um, was that typically uh, women do attempt more suicide than men, um, but 
uh, in those areas, um, access to services was more difficult and the means of attempt was more lethal. So mm. we tended to die more by suicide. Um, how can we explain this paradox is, uh, it's, you know, although we don't understand it fully, but I think the most uh, clear hypothesis is that um, uh, men in general tend to use more lethal means, yes, mm. um, than women uh, when they attempt suicide, yes, so that it leads to um, more deaths than, uh, than women. Undoubtedly, and undoubtedly, Prof, you know, there are links between, you know, mental health disorders and suicide, from ADHD to depression and psychosis. But as you point out in your 2020 Nature Reviews primer, and I quote, although suicide is not an inevitable outcome of any psychiatric disease, specific features of individual diseases are associated with suicide. So what are these? Yes. So. Uh, clearly, yes, uh, there's uh, uh, mental illness is the most uh, strongest predictor of, uh, of suicide in the sense that uh, most of the people who die by suicide, if not all, uh, were affected by a mental illness. Um, now, most of the people who have mental illness do not die by suicide yet. So the issue is, uh, uh, is, is who uh, among the people who are affected. So let's take depression, for instance, you know, who among the people who have uh, depression would die by suicide? Yes. So there are certain features that help us understand um, uh, risk, yes, of suicide among individuals of one particular psychopathology. So these are um, levels of impulsivity, yes, and aggressive behavior. So impulsive, aggressive mm -hmm. behaviors. Um, uh, are uh, very strong predictors of, uh, of suicide among individuals who um, are depressed, um, um, as well as um, hopelessness, yes, is uh, one important characteristic of the, uh, of the individual, let's say, of the depressive episode that helps us understand suicide risk. Um, uh, there are a number of other ones that have more to do with the individual per se. So let's say a family history uh, of suicidal behaviors. So uh, in general, um, uh, you have certain uh, risk factors, yes, that yeah. uh, uh, help us understand risk, but uh, we cannot um, uh, do it, you know, systematically and understand person by person. And suicide attempts have also been associated with the use of substances such as drugs and alcohol. And, and that has been the case in many observational studies. And then here you are suggesting that there is an that this association between substances and suicide attempts is indeed causal. So tell me more. Well, causal, it depends how you, you know, you have to be careful when you say causal. I think that substance use um, uh, is an important risk factor. <clears throat> the uh, way we understand that is that substance use disinhibits yes, behavior. So, um, so if you are, let's say, uh, in an episode of depression, with depression you would have typically suicidal ideation. Yeah, suicidal ideation is 
uh, to uh, some extent, you know, part of the natural history of of um, of uh, depression, and um, um, then you have suicide ideation, and then you are more impulsive aggressive uh, in general, and then you um, uh, use substance, and substance disinhibit this impulsive aggression, so you're more likely to act on the suicidal thoughts. So that's somewhat of the model in which we understand the use, you know, the, the comorbidity between substance and, um, uh, and depression leading to an increased risk of, uh, of, um, of suicide. And so we touched on, you know, sex differences, you know, the impact of ill mental health and drugs. We do know, though, that variation in suicide also exists between countries to some extent, also reflecting the impact of culture. So Greece, for example, has had traditionally extremely low suicide rates, something that rapidly changed after the recession. And the recent research letter by Paul Nestad looking into suicide mortality trends in Maryland, in the States, during this pandemic. So he showed an increase in suicides in black individuals that also happened to be poor. And you also recently co-authored the paper published at JAMA Network Open showing how leveraging social support can improve outcomes in adolescents, including suicide-related outcomes. So the question is, do you think that the poor and socially disadvantaged are disproportionately affected by suicide? Well, look, I think first, um, uh, you know, you have to understand um, uh, that you know there are uh, a number of different factors that uh, play a role. So clearly, uh, poverty uh, associates with a number of negative uh, uh, mental health outcomes. Yes, so suicide is not an exception. Um, um, what uh, you said about you know geographic variation and uh, and 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 variations in uh, suicide rates. Um, you have to understand that, uh, yes, there is variability, variability that it's um, uh, mostly attributed to um, uh, time and, uh, and, and socio-demographic uh, uh, variabilities be be you know, in, uh, uh, between societies, yes? So you have uh, as well, uh, there's nothing innate to a particular a uh, group that makes it more uh, predisposed to uh, to suicide, as far as we understand. Um, uh, but risk factors change over time, yes, and change geographically, and that's what determines variability between uh, between um, uh, communities, including sociodemographic factors and poverty. Yes, so with mm. uh, you know with poverty, we have uh, a decrease in social cohesion or or decrease on um uh on on protector you know on social protecting factors in some you know and depends also in in countries to, to countries you know you have different social supports and um um and even within particular regions you would have this variability yes so let's say you you talk about uh, greece and other countries which you know even within a country yes you would have variabilities within regions yes mm. so um, uh, uh, and then you would have regions that have much higher rates of suicide, whereas other regions that have you know, uh, lower rates of suicide. So it is difficult to compare countries um, um, per se, yes, 
yes, you have national rates, but then you have these differences. So even for instance, here in Canada, we have in the North, uh, in the Northern communities, uh, we have rates that are 10 times higher than the national average. Yes. So there is, there is um, a lot of variability. The variability has to do with uh, modifiable variable risk factors for suicide, you know, that um, change over time. And there's Fair nothing about I mean, individual risk factors. In one of your most iconic papers for The Lancet, that was cited nearly a thousand times, you essentially consolidated what you call the stress diathesis approach of suicide. So, so can you tell me a bit more about this? Yes. So, so that um, it's a way to understand uh, individual suicide risk. Yes. So, you would have um, uh, you know individuals have a certain diathesis, a certain predisposition. Yes, that it's given by uh, who they are. Yes. So we are all made by you know a genetic makeup, and then we go through life and have. Uh, life experiences that would interact with our uh, genome and uh, modify the genome, and then um, that makes us who we are. Yes. Um, so, uh, so that is the um, uh, the um, individual predisposition. Yes. And then you have events that occur in the life of the person, and that. Um, interact with these individual predispositions. Yes, so that's the stress diathesis model, if you wish. Yes, mm -hmm. the diathesis is are you know it's made of all of these um, uh, genetic and um, factors plus the modifications of the experience through epigenetic factors. Yes, and then um, you have events that occur. So let's say. Uh, you know, you have uh, you are exposed to a breakup, or you lose all your you know uh, uh, your means, or you uh, were humiliated socially and uh, publicly. So these are events that would trigger um, uh, in many people, you know, depressive fat, depressive episodes. Um, some uh, in, and then in some of these, in some people, you know, these depressive episodes will uh, lead to a suicide. Yes. And why is because we believe that um, these people uh, have particular um, um, predisposing factors. Now, Prof, you have researched for many years one of the, let's say, less talked about side of suicide, the biological substrate. So you co-authored the Frontiers paper published uh, this February, whereby using a post-mortem approach, you show there is a clear astrocytic dysfunction in depressed suicides. And on a similar note, in a fascinating 3020 molecular psychiatry paper, you showed how a novel, long, non-coding RNA is involved in the regulation of aggressive, impulsive behaviors that in turn strongly predicts lifetime suicide behavior. So how are you hoping to use this information? How can you jump from astrocytes and long, non-coding RNAs to actually suicide? Yeah. So, so look, I think we need to um, understand exactly what's going on in the brain of individuals who um, are depressed or and think about suicide. And um, there is only one way of understanding is by uh, investigating um, the brains and trying to, um, um, you know, trying to dissect and uh, understand at the molecular level. I mean, that's my approach there. 
other approaches as well that are valid, but you know, my particular interest is trying to understand um, uh, what happens at the molecular level. So um, when you do that, uh, well, you need to understand that's exactly what is the diathesis, yes, and uh, what uh, and what are the stressors. So, you know, the um, the approach of my lab has been, uh, you know, in, in, in two ways. So first, we have focused on the impact of early life adversity. Yes, because early life adversity is an important predictor of, of lifetime right. at risk. Yes. So, uh, and, you know, I think that uh, we all can relate to that even clinically, you know, to see how individuals who went through um, significant early life uh, stressors, yes, um, have a hard time regulating their emotions and behaviors, you know, later on. And that, um, so we have been trying to understand, okay, so what happens with uh, these individuals? So what changes occur in the brain as a result of um, the exposure to our life adversity? Yes. So, uh, you know, we have uh, taken the approach of uh, trying to understand uh, adaptations that occur because we, you know, we, we believe that, um, you know, uh, individuals who are exposed to life adversity early on in life, you know, at a period in which the brain is um, very plastic and adapting to environmental experience, you know, the so-called critical periods, um, the, you know, the brain adapts and adjusts uh, to uh, better respond to uh, that particular environment. And then there are a number of processes that occur at the molecular level. So, um, you know, these processes that collectively are referred to as epigenetics, yes, so would modify, you know, at the molecular level brain cells, yes. So uh, we have um, uh, investigated uh, the changes that occur in these brain cells at the molecular, you know, at 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 a, at, at a specific uh, epigenetic uh, changes like epigen like uh, methylation, for instance, yes, and um, and then uh, have taken different approaches at looking at other other um, uh, molecular um, uh, changes that occur, such as long non-coding RNAs, yes, mm. so. Um, you know, obviously, we won't have time to get into details of this. Yeah, of but, course. Um, uh, but you know, long non-coding RNAs are um, are a part of the machinery uh, in uh, in the cells that help cells adjust and um, and and uh, function. And um, and these are long, as the name says, says long. Uh, uh, pieces of RNA that do not code to proteins but have a regulatory function. So in this particular case, we identified a long non-coding RNA um, that it's almost 8 kb, so it's very long. It's intergenic. Yeah, um, so in other words, you know, it's 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 not intra a gene. You know, it, it's coded in a um, in between two genes um, and and was placed between the two genes that code for monoamine oxidase and that regulate one of the monoamine oxidase genes. Yes, and we've shown that um, this long non-coding RNA, um, it uh, regulates uh, impulsive aggressive behaviors. 
Yes. Okay. So I told you before that impulsive aggressive behaviors are risk factors for suicide. So what we've uh, shown is that um, this long non-coding RNA, you know, it, it's um, it's increased in individuals who die by suicide with histories of their life adversity, and that you know, and then um, uh, explains at least at least in animal models that we have done, uh, you know, explains increased uh, impulsive aggressive behaviors. So this could be one possible molecular mechanism that uh, would lead to this. So you know, I, we, um, the astrocytes is uh, it's another example of uh, other molecular ways, you know, to understand um, uh, uh, depressive and suicidal behavior. So um, so you know, the brain is complex. They're not only neurons. All the cells are and astrocytes are fascinating cells. You know that uh, that help as well the brain function, and so we have also uh, identified uh, some um, results that suggest that there is a dysregulation of astrocytes in depression as we said. But but, but let's get a bit more clinical. You know, approximately 45 percent of individuals who die by suicide consult a primary care physician within one month of death. So either we're doing something totally wrong or suicide risk is indeed incredibly difficult to predict or maybe both. So, so what's happening, you think? Yeah, probably a little bit of both, yes. So I don't think we do something wrong deliberately. I just think that, um, you know, it, it, this, this data that you said, you know, it's, it's in, um, you know, in general uh, primary care settings, yes. So often, um uh you know in primary care settings you know people uh do not uh, don't get asked certain questions yes so they don't talk about them and so that's basically what these data uh, suggest i think you know um uh we have been doing a little bit better probably now i mean there has been a lot of uh programs to educate primary care clinicians about the importance of asking questions and i think that um you know, uh, uh, there has been somewhat of an improvement. But if you think that, you know, in some places, the primary care appointment lasts for, let's say, 10 minutes or so, yes, uh, it is, um, you know, it is difficult uh, for the primary care clinician to cover everything. You know, the, uh, the, the, you know, the chief complaint for which, you know, the person came to see and plus ask questions about other things. Um, so maybe we're missing there some people at risk. Mm. I think that, so that's the part maybe that we're doing that we could do better, let's say, this put this way. And then the other part is that, you know, um, suicide, suicide ideation fluctuates. Uh, people um, uh, not always uh, uh, um, want to disclose or talk about it. Yes. Uh, some um uh you know for um for some patients uh you know uh, some people have difficulties talking about uh um their emotions or talking about uh um particularly you know in, in if you if you talk in general in primary care you know and, and also uh, males young males you know who are uh at risk of suicide and die so there are um uh you know i think that the approach that we have is not always ideal and then so at that level 
uh, there is um, uh, there is room for improvement. Now, yeah. do we know exactly how? No, we don't. And, and of course, you know, the most important question is what do we do after we establish that someone is at risk for attempting suicide? And while I'm way far from suggesting that, you know, a pill will solve the situation, I was really intrigued to read Keith Houghton's systematic review and meta-analysis of ketamine for suicidal ideation in adults with psychiatric disorders. So what they suggest is that a single infusion of ketamine may have a short-term, up to 72 hours, beneficial impact on suicidal thoughts. So are there robust pharmacological options or do you think we have you know, over-relied on these pharmacological options over the years? Yeah, no, so we don't have, I mean, we do have robust pharmacological options collectively, yes, but we don't have specific pharmacological options to address suicidal ideation, yes? Uh, ketamine is one example. I mean, it's not specific for suicidal ideation. It does act on suicidal ideation, but not only on that, yes? So you can say the same for all the other uh, medications that we have, which are collectively, I think, efficient, but are not necessarily specific yeah, for suicidal ideation. So um, um, the, you know, ketamine, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm about this because, you know, if you have, if you are in the context, let's say, of an emergency, yes, in an emergency room, and you are seeing a patient that comes to the emergency room, and it's uh, suicidal, and then, uh, you know, typically, what would you do? You know, what you would do is that you would uh, keep the patient, and if it's someone that you're very concerned, you put the patient on constant care, yes, um, and and. Uh, and you would treat the suicidal crisis. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm talking in general because obviously it depends on the case by case and the nature of the suicide, you know, suicide crisis. But you know, in general, if you're concerned, so you're going to keep the patient hospitalized and you know, and then on constant care until the suicidal crisis, the episode, you know, it's, uh, it's treated. That may take several uh, uh, days or weeks, yes, and maybe a month. Um, uh, so, you know, by using ketamine, you know, if the suicidal uh, ideation improves and the suicidal crisis can be dealt more effectively, so there's obviously uh, tremendous advantages about mm -hmm. this. Um, and uh, so there is a lot of enthusiasm um, in the use of ketamine to treat uh, suicidal episodes, you know, crisis per se. And, and Prof, you know, what would a brain cast be without COVID? So based on the fact that suicide rates in the U.S. have been rising over the last two decades, Mark Greger wrote a viewpoint published at JAMA Psychiatry titled Suicide Mortality and Coronavirus Disease 2019, A Perfect Storm. And on the other hand, you know, I was reading Professor Louis Appleby's viewpoint at BMJ, and it seems that, you know, we need to be a bit more cautious in our estimates. So what do you think was the pandemic impact on suicide? Or is it too early to say? Yeah, I think we have to be more cautious, you know, in how we uh, make uh, estimates about the impact. Uh, so I think it's early to know for sure what the effect, what the, the total effect of the pandemic will be. What we know, for instance, is in the first phase of the pandemic, you know, so the first few months um, until June, let's say, last year, what we saw was actually a reduction of suicide rates. You know, pretty much in many of the places, 
there's an interesting paper um, by uh, Jane Perkins on published recently in the in Lancet Psychiatry showing precisely that that in the first months of the pandemic suicide rates actually went up. Yet, so you know it is possible to think about this because you know the first months of the pandemic people um, uh, you know was a, a general crisis uh, normalized. Uh, 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 isolation, normalize a lot of things. It was a lot of uh, uh, support, you know, in many in many respects. So maybe mm -hmm. that contributed to a reduced uh, uh, in suicide rates. But you know, but we don't know yet. We don't have data yet, as far as I'm aware, for after you know the second and third phases of the of um, of um, of the pandemic. So you know, it's just if you think about the impact, you know, at least here in my environment, you know, the first phase of the pandemic was associated with a significant decrease in, in patients in going to hospitals, emergencies, et cetera. But then after that, everything normalized. Um, uh, so we'll see, you know, we'll see exactly how they come. The last question, we have only 40 seconds. So inspired by the pandemic, Professor David said in his you know, blog for UCL that there is no vaccine for suicide, but there are some ways to increase immunity. So what are these ways in your opinion? Well, look, it would take like an hour to tell you to answer that question. 40 not, seconds, it's, that's basically, it. it's all of the above. So I think that what we need to do is basically, you know, improve improve prevention, yes. We have to improve access to treatment to people who are at risk, yes. And significantly invest on uh, on research on suicide, you know, to better understand exactly uh, suicide, what, what um, you know, uh, develop more specific interventions. Yeah. And uh, better, uh, better do the jobs that basically right now we have a hard time doing. Fantastic, <laughs> Professor Gustavo Turecki. We've only scratched the surface of a massive iceberg of research on suicide. And even if you hadn't listened to a word of all the things we've been talking about the last 30 minutes, do yourself a favor and read his excellent paper in Nature Reviews, published in 2019, titled "Suicide." and suicide risk. You can thank me later. In the meantime, I will remain overseas as I take the first flight from Montreal to Boston, where I find Professor Silberman. The reason? So Professor Silberman published a paper at the British Journal of Psychiatry a few months back. And instead of thanks and invitations you know, for interviews, he received death threats. It's topic, benzodiazepines, which happens to be what we will be discussing next Monday. Until then, Post point braincast for more stay learning over and out.